Great is the Lord in heaven above, the one in whom we have the victory. Lord, we thank you today that we're not coming here just to look at each other and to look at ourselves, but to look at you. Lord, we would see Jesus today. Be present by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask, and change our lives. Amen. Please do take your seats. Um, I think John mentioned I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be speaking from that passage. If you'd like to turn back to Mark chapter 5, we're in this incredible section of Mark's gospel at the moment. Thank you so much, musicians. Uh, Two women went out to skate one day on a frozen lake. One of them was an experienced skater with great confidence. She uh, went out as a semi-pro. The other one was a beginner who was very nervous. They went out onto the lake in different places. The good skater confidently stepped onto some thin ice, saying, I know this will hold me up. But it was actually only a quarter of an inch thick. It broke and she sank. The, the nervous beginner went out onto the ice saying, I'm really scared. I hope this will hold me up. But the ice where she was was a foot thick. You could have driven a car out onto it. And so in spite of all her fears, she was safe. Timothy Keller comments, the skater with lots of faith will sink, while the other one with little faith will be safe. Why? It is not the faith that saves, but the ice. The object of faith, the thing your faith is being put in, the place you're standing. All you need to live is enough faith to commit to the right object. So we see that it's not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. Faith is not ultimately a matter of having complete certainty. Who has that? But it's a matter of commitment to the right person. Now this section of Mark's gospel that we're looking at is about faith. Specifically, it's asking us to think about the nature of faith. What is faith about and how important it is? And we're learning some lessons about faith. Mark's book, right back at the beginning, began with a dramatic unveiling of Jesus as God's special king, the Messiah, who is coming to bring God's kingdom into the world. But again and again in the book, we're seeing that Jesus is an unlikely, unexpected king, and his kingdom is like no other kingdom anyone has ever seen. Jesus' opening words in the book were, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And in a way, everything we've read so far in Mark is an unpacking of that short statement. What is this kingdom? Who is the king? And what does it mean mean to believe, to trust, to have faith in the good news? And last week, we read two stories about Jesus that teach lessons about faith. Jesus calmed a storm with a simple word, a calm word, and then he exercised, uh, freed a man from evil Spirits, a man who was terribly possessed. And we learned three lessons about faith. I'm going to quickly review them before we come to this week's passage. Firstly, faith in Jesus is not automatic. It's not a feeling. It is something that must be exercised. It's not passive, just waiting for life to change. Faith must take action to apply what we know about Jesus to our situation, especially during life's storms. I feel like something weird is happening with the sound. Does it sound okay to you? It's just my head then, okay. 
life storms. The, the disciples who were in the boat could have reminded each other of all that they knew about Jesus' power, of all that they knew about his love and commitment, but they didn't. They feared. In the storm, Jesus is basically saying, I'm giving you everything you need for faith, but when the storm came, you didn't exercise it. First lesson. Second lesson, just having knowledge is not enough. In the episode with the demon-possessed man, the demoniac, we read that the demons have good theology. They correctly identify Jesus. They even do some God talk, and they kind of pray. But mere knowledge is not enough. So although faith has content, it is based on information and truths, it's based on evidence, just believing, just knowing is not enough. You need to put your trust in someone. And finally, we thought about how faith has three parts. Knowledge, knowing the truth, assent, agreeing with it, and trust, putting your trust in Jesus. And the illustration there is of getting on an aeroplane. The first part of your faith in flying is knowledge. You know that this vehicle with two wings can in fact go at a very fast speed, somehow get off the runway, fly through the air, and land safely. You know that. You know the information. Ascent is to agree that that's possible. I believe that that's true information about planes and pilots. But notice, you're still not on the plane yet. So the full faith is to say, I will trust the pilot and the plane, get on, sit down, and put my life in the pilot's hands. And that's faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. Now this week, we are back in the school of faith again, here in Mark chapter 5. And I think here, Mark's purpose is to call us to faith in Jesus, in spite of appearances and in spite of hopeless situations. My first point is desperate situations. Desperate situations. Now notice that this passage, which was read for us beautifully earlier on, is a story within a story, a tale within a tale. The story begins in verse 21. Jesus comes and a synagogue leader, a man called Jairus, comes and he's begging Jesus to come and heal his little daughter who is at the brink of death. And then the story is interrupted by the story of a woman who comes to Jesus very, very secretly. Jairus is very public. This woman is secret. She's coming behind him in the crowd, just thinking, if only I can touch him somehow, I will be healed. And then the story picks up again with Jairus' daughter, who by this stage is actually dead. So you have a story within a story. It's sometimes called a sandwich. And we'll think more about sandwiches later just to make you feel hungry. Now these two people, Jairus and the unnamed woman, are about as different as you can get, aren't they? They, they, they are so different, but they have one thing in common. They are victims of desperate circumstances. And apart from Jesus, they have absolutely no hope at all. Just consider this. Jairus has got a big name and he holds an important position. He's a president or a ruler of the synagogue. And therefore, in a religious society, he's a very respectable respected member of the community. He has prestige and status. He can come and presume, there's a big crowd there, but Jairus can say, would you come to my house? He can presume to do that. And he's not disappointed because Jesus agrees to go with him. Now this woman can claim none of these things. Her name isn't even given. Maybe her name was never found out. She has no position in society. Her only identification is her source of shame. 
She has internal bleeding, possibly, the scholars think, a menstrual hemorrhage. Now, it's really important for us to understand here that this is not simply a medical problem, although it is that. It is a cultural and religious disaster for her. Because of this constant bleeding, she is ceremonially unclean. She's considered unclean and untouchable. And therefore, underneath Jewish law, she can't come into contact with other people and touch them without making them unclean as well. Now just think about the, the impact that would have on someone. And this is why she creeps up so silently and secretly behind Jesus to try to remain unnoticed. Because by touching Jesus, she's going to make him unclean as well. This embarrassing condition also meant the woman has been unable to go to worship God with other people. She can't go to church. So this poor woman has been in great physical and personal distress for 12 years, it says, and has been unable to go and worship God with his people. Now, the Bible writers are usually quite reserved in talking about emotions, aren't they? But you only have to think for a moment about these two characters to see how desperate the situation felt. Jairus has this little daughter. Oh my word. I've got four, so excuse me, four sons and one daughter. And as a, a friend said, I, I love my sons, but I adore my daughter. To think that his daughter is about to die at 12 years of age. How is he feeling? He is torn apart. He will do anything. He actually falls on his knees before Jesus. Most of the religious leaders are, are afraid of Jesus. They don't want to be associated with Jesus. Some of them are trying to kill Jesus. Jairus comes in full view of everyone and falls and begs him, please, please, come. And we can only imagine the feeling as the story goes on when Jesus initially starts off and then stops and has a chat with this woman. And Jairus all the time is thinking, Come on, she's, she's really at the brink. You know, she's at the death's door. She's at the point of dying. Please come. Please come now. And then finally the word comes, she's actually died. Just don't bother the teacher anymore. It's too late now. And numb with grief, Jesus, he then hears Jesus say to him, don't fear, only believe. <laughs> what does he feel like going into the house? And there they already started mourning. Heartbreaking anguish. One commentator translates it like this. My daughter is going to die. My daughter is going to die. Please come. Lay your hands on her. Rescue her. Let her live. And then there's the woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And she, according to Mark, has suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She'd spent all she had, and instead of getting better, she's got worse. This is a picture of somebody who has exhausted all their resources and is now absolutely desperate. It's interesting, the Gospel of Luke says she'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. They say Luke was a doctor. Mark is really emphasizing that this woman has not simply been suffering, but she's also been suffering from the cures and spent all her money. She's given up hope for any human help and all the medical options. And these two, as I said, are opposite ends of the spectrum, the social spectrum. But they are united in their helplessness. Both of them come to Jesus with desperate issues. They are powerless to change. Hopeless 
situations. And thinking about that, there will be people facing such circumstances in this room today. Circumstances in your life that are beyond your control. You've exhausted everything trying to, trying to sort it out. And uh, you're out of hope. There will be people like that here now. You've got nowhere else to turn but Jesus Christ. Where are you putting your faith? Let me just press that a little bit more. Hopeless times will come to us all in the end, won't they? At some point. We imagine that our lives are constantly going to be happy and healthy and, you know, happy ever after ending. It doesn't work. Life isn't like that. One day we will meet an obstacle that is beyond our control. It might be a disease. It might be something that happens to a child or a loved one. And then, of course, there's death itself, the final obstacle. Where can we turn in our desperate situations? Mark is showing us that there is only one place to go. There's only one person. And that's the second point. The omnipotent Savior. The omnipotent Savior. The London preacher Dick Lucas says that the theme of the four stories, the two last week and the two this week, is Jesus' authority over the impossible. The forces that bow down to Jesus without a struggle on his part are forces that are completely outside of human control. Last week we saw his power over a furious storm and the sea. The forces of nature. Last week we saw his power over the demoniac, the forces of supernatural evil. And this week we see his, for, his power over incurable disease and even death itself. Jairus came to Jesus asking for a miracle and he got a resurrection. Are there any enemies left for Jesus to fight? He's beaten all the contenders. Jesus Christ is being established here for us as omnipotent. Omni, all, potent, powerful. It's an old-fashioned word. It means all-powerful. He is an omnipotent savior. The theme running through all these stories is that Jesus has power of divine magnitude. And Jesus brings down barriers that human resources can't touch. Now, some of you may be skeptical and you may be privately thinking, you know, this is all interesting enough, but it's really quite unbelievable. You know, isn't this just actually evidence that Christians and Christianity is naive? This sort of thing doesn't really happen. It's a religion based on primitive sources written down by gullible people. <laughs> and if that's you, then I'm, we're so glad that you're here today. We are so glad. We love questions and dialogue and learning together. And I would just caution you, skeptical friend, against chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is, is an unassumed belief that people in the past were less intelligent than people today. Now, of course, there are, there are dumb people in every generation. Right? I speak as one of them. 
But that doesn't mean that all the people in the past were just unthinkingly uncritical. We must beware chronological snobbery of thinking that somehow because of some sort of evolutionary trend in IQ that we're more intelligent or perceptive than people in the past. Remember, your great-grandchildren will be embarrassed by things that you believe today. Notice from our text itself, these people weren't expecting it either. They weren't gullible and naive. The text repeatedly says that when Jesus performed these mighty deeds of power, everyone was terrified. They don't know what to do with it, don't have a category. We don't expect things like this to happen, neither did they. But if there really is a God, and if he really did decide to step into his world, wouldn't he have the power to do things like this? Such power to deal with the impossible, to deal with the truly desperate, hopeless situations of our lives. We have an omnipotent saviour who can deal with desperate situations. How can we get access to that power? Thirdly and finally, through saving faith. Saving faith. The answer is we come into contact with Jesus' power through faith by putting our trust in the right object. Remember the ice skaters? It's not about you having lots and lots and lots of faith. It's about what you're stepping onto. And the object of faith that Mark is commending to us is Jesus Christ. Now remember, again, this passage tells a story within a story, a tale within a tale. The sandwich technique, uh, which Mark loves. Mark loves sandwiches. The sandwich has two pieces of bread and a filling in the middle. Start the story, then put the meat in, or the vegan option, and then have the, uh, the, the bread on the other side. And in Mark, the middle bit, the meat-slash-vegan option, often sheds light on the other two bits of the story. So what does Mark want us to learn about faith in Christ here by putting these stories together? I want to make three points from this, and then we're going to uh, carry on in worship. Firstly, Jesus loves the people who the world despises. Jesus loves the people who the world despises. Just remember the contrast between the two stories again. Think about the perspective that everyone in the crowd had on Jairus. You know, he looks pretty good. He's wearing his pinstripe suit. Jairus is no slouch. He's a community leader. And then there's this woman who is just a nobody. She actually dares show her face. You've got the VIP and the nobody. And Jesus is not satisfied simply to heal the woman. He must stop and find her. You see that? He must stop and find her. He wants a personal interaction. He wants to know her, to engage with her, to move her faith to a deeper level. It is possible that this woman, woman's faith, some people think was, her faith was somewhat flawed. It seems a bit superstitious. You don't normally get healed by Jesus by sort of touching his clothes. There's nothing magic about Jesus' clothes. They're just ordinary clothes. It's Jesus that has the power. She may have been quite superstitious. Jesus won't stop with that. He does heal her, but then he wants to move her on. And he wants her to know, you know, it wasn't these clothes that healed you. It was your faith because you put your faith in me, the right person. He seeks her out. Faith in Jesus Christ is not about getting him to fix your problems, first and foremost. 
It is about entering a personal relationship with him. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ personally? Do you walk with him? Are you conscious of his presence with you day by day? Do you turn to him? Even when life is so pressing in on you that you only have time to reach out and touch his robe, is he there? Has this gone beyond mere information to relationship and transformation? Over and over in the Gospels, we see Jesus refusing to be taken in by the world's standards of fame, wealth, power, beauty. He does not give preference to people who have more money or more influence. Jesus tends to love the publican over the Pharisee. He tends to love the prostitute, the leper, the tax collector, the social, moral, racial outsiders. Jesus loves the people the world despises. And you know what? If you're one of those people, if you feel you really messed your life up, or maybe you just never felt you were particularly worth anything, maybe you've been abused. You haven't even got a self-image, it's so bad. You look around and think, I can't talk to half these people. They seem so, like they've got it together. Jesus Christ loves you. He loves the people that the world despises. That's part of the reversal of values in his kingdom. The way up is the way down. The way to power is by serving. The way to life is by being ready to die to yourself. And the last shall be first. Jesus loves those that the world despises. Secondly, Jesus' love is both powerful and very tender. Jesus' love is both powerful and very tender. Notice how he interacted with these different characters. With the woman who just wants to sneak away. You know, she just wants to get out of there, but he wants to interact with her. He wants to speak, to look her in the eye, to be face to face, to, to communicate to her. You know, you thought your touch was going to make me unclean. Your touch made you clean. You notice that Jesus actually says to the woman in verse 34, daughter, your faith has healed you. See what he just did? Nobody has called her daughter for a very long time. Jesus has just brought her into his family. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So powerful and yet very tender. The personal touch. And then this man, Jairus, who's numb with grief. People come and they say, do you know what? The daughter's dead. Why bother him anymore? And, and, and Jesus overhears it and he says, don't be afraid, Jairus, just believe. And goodness knows what Jairus is thinking at that point. He's in shock. He actually would be in shock, wouldn't he? He's traumatized. And Jesus then notices, he doesn't let the crowd follow, stay here. He only takes three disciples, just three trusted, close disciples. He, this isn't for the cameras. 
This isn't some kind of PR stunt. It's very sensitive. He only takes the three and he goes with Jairus to the house. And in that culture, they actually employed professional mourners. Can you imagine being a professional mourner? My goodness. Actually, quite a good job for me, I think. I'm quite gloomy. Professional mourners who would who would be there, and, and it actually was part of the grieving process. They would help the family grieve because the professional mourners would show up and they would start crying and wailing and weeping and sometimes playing a flute in a mournful way. I mean, and they're already there at the house. I mean, they must have been on standby, had them on the speed dial. There's the professional mourners and they're all there and there's a commotion. And they're all crying and wailing. and It's very Middle Eastern, you know. It's, it's not very British. There's no stiff upper lips here. Everyone's crying and wailing loudly. And Jesus goes in. He says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. What? I mean, talk about power. Jesus' authority here, he can call death sleep. And they laughed at him. And they still do laugh about the resurrection. But we know better And then he puts them all out. We're not doing a show here. He puts them out and he goes just with father and mother and the three close disciples. And look at this, verse 41. He goes to where the child is, dead, and he takes her by the hand. And he says, Talitha, kum. Kum means get up. And this is the standard way that you would wake up a child. Little girl, get up. Now, the interesting thing, you can see it in your Bible there, is Talitha kum is in italics because it's in a different language. This is actually the Aramaic language, the language that Jesus and his contemporaries would have spoken at home. The Bible is, New Testament is written in Greek, but here we get a little breakthrough of some actual language that was used at that moment. Just, just a little hint of what it, what it sounded like. Mark even gives us a translation, which means, little girl, get up. Why this quote in Aramaic? What's going on here? Why would they leave this little phrase in untranslated? The best explanation I have heard is that this scene made such a deep impression on Peter and the others that whenever they told this story afterwards, And they told it many times. Even when they were telling it in Greek, they kept these crucial words just as they were because those words went down deep. They saw Jesus sit there, hold her hand and say, Talitha kum. And not magic words, ordinary words to wake up a sleeping child. But the point is that the kingdom of God is breaking into the ordinary, to everyday life. And this girl who is 12 years old, 12 years old, and the woman had been bleeding for 12 years. This is the little daughter, and Jesus called the woman daughter. The two stories are being very linked for us. Jesus wakes her from the sleep of death. She takes a breath and wakes up. And then he says, get her something to eat, because 12-year-olds are always hungry. What a lovely eyewitness detail. Now, Jesus' love is both powerful and very tender and personal. Intimately, the right thing for the different people, isn't it? But notice this final point. He does so at his own pace. Jesus is not in a hurry. Jesus is not in a hurry, and we are. 
We learn in this passage that Jesus' love is compatible with delays. And these delays are apparently inexplicable to the people who were there. So the woman's been healed, okay? She came up and he felt some power go out of him. And he turns and he, who touched me? And they're all saying, what? Lord, what do you mean who touched you? It's like you're standing in the middle of a scrum on the rugby pitch. Everyone's touching you. I mean, there's all pressing in around him. Who touched, who touched me? Someone here touched me in a different way. I want to know who it is. He stops and they look around. Eventually she comes forward. And then he starts the conversation and Jairus is She's going to die. And the woman's need isn't that acute anymore. And Jairus has got faith and he believes, but he's, he's put on hold. And to him, it would look like Jesus' delay was fatal, wouldn't it? He thought it was over. So the woman believes and lives. Jairus believes and the daughter dies. Jesus tells Jairus that despite all appearances, he should just believe. Now, what is Jesus saying here to us? He's saying, my loving care is compatible with deadly troubles and delays. He won't always fix your problems overnight or even in a few months or even in a few years or maybe not even in this life. We need to remember those disciples in the storm. They had a Lord who was sleeping. They thought he was unconcerned. Jairus is subjected to a delay. Like the disciples, the Lord appears to be inattentive and distracted, but he's not. He's doing this to teach us something about where we put our faith, how much weight we're putting on the right ice. Is it possible, friends, that after you've trusted Jesus Christ, your problems in life might get worse? Of course that's possible. What does this tell us about faith? It tells us that our faith must rest on him to do the right thing with his power and in his time, not merely do it along our timeline and our agenda as we wish it to be. And that can be one of the hardest things we will learn as believers. Jesus sometimes seems not to be focused on our problems. It often looks like Jesus doesn't care. But we learn here that God loves us and yet that doesn't mean we won't see storms. God is not asleep, but he will not be hurried. Don't try to hurry Jesus. He simply will not allow it. He is too wise and too happy to be hurried. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we need your touch upon our lives again. We thank you that you are here speaking through your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray for those people here who, have, who are facing desperate situations, who are aching or grieving because of your timeline. And I ask that today they would learn in a deeper way to rest their trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.